Welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, our podcast series uh, produced by Railway Age Railway Track and Structures and International Railway Journal. This is Railway Age Editor-in-Chief William C. Vantuono. Today, my guest is the President and CEO of New Jersey Transit, one of the largest public transportation agencies and commuter rail operators in the nation. This is part of our series that has been coordinated with the Commuter Rail Coalition. Thank you very much, Kellyanne Gallagher, for putting this together for us. Uh, Kevin, uh, welcome. As all transit agencies have, have been dealing with uh, during this uh, pandemic, things have been tough, of course. Ridership went down. Things are starting to recover. New Jersey Transit just recently, I think within the past few days, reinstituted a full schedule. Can you explain the, the impetus behind that, the strategy behind doing that? Yeah, Bill. Uh, it, it first, uh, thanks for thanks for having uh, having me on, and uh, for Kellyanne for uh, uh, helping organize. Uh, you know, uh, always appreciate getting uh, you know good information out to people who really are looking for it, and certainly uh, Railway Aid, your you know, and your uh, other publications really do a, do a really good job of that. So uh, it's always good to be able to talk to people who are interested in in you know really the quality, not just the the, the clickbait kind of. Uh, the news. So certainly COVID, you know, I think you've seen nationally. Um, I would say in my role as co-chair of the Northeast Quarter Commission with Ron Vittori, uh, head of the FRA, uh, being on the board of APTA, obviously with Kellyanne uh, and the uh, coalition, uh, and then uh, UITP, the International Transit Organization based in Brussels, where we really compare what's going on around the world. If there's ever a time where being with those kind of um, associations and groups where we really help pull together the information and uh, rely on each other within the industry. Uh, the COVID crisis has proved uh, you know, the value of, of that kind of a network. And certainly what we've seen uh, globally and certainly in the United States, uh, New York and New Jersey really were the epicenter in the beginning and we now see it spreading around the country. But as you said, our, our ridership was off tremendously. Uh, we're down, you know, we were down you know, to single digits, you know, three, four, 5%. A ridership uh, when we had the lockdown. Uh, it has been coming back and I think uh, the real uh, we're up to about 15-16% uh, of our ridership on rail uh, and about 25 uh, plus percent on bus, 25-30%. Uh, Most of the bus really is more the intrastate. Uh, the New York City market, the big driver for a lot of our, our rail traffic and uh, you know bus traffic into New York, 430 bus terminal for bus, you know obviously Penn Station in New York. And even Hoboken for people going to Lower Manhattan, transferring to Path, that is still down dramatically because of the uh, lack of activity in Manhattan, both on the business side and, of course, tourism and you know people going to Broadway shows, et cetera. So uh, we do see it coming back. I would say because uh, we took, I think, a New Jersey Transit uh, prompt action, we set up a Corona Task Force back in February before it really became a uh, uh, the crisis really started hitting in March. Um, and we made a point of uh, cleaning all our vehicles, uh, you know, trains, uh, you know, with cab cars as well for the engineers, both employees and riders, uh, all our buses and light rail vehicles, so that, you know, uh, we've been trying to provide the, cl the cleanest, uh, safest uh, environment uh, for our workers and for our riders. So I think that's part of getting people confident of coming back. And as you said, the um, Governor, this week, uh, one of the things is social distancing. I think the biggest thing we've seen evolve. You know, you, if you remember in the beginning, people weren't sure where you know CDC guidance. Do you have masks? Are they good or bad? You know, a lot of the health practices were sort of up in the air as people figured it out. 
but we really see the mass the most important thing. It's very hard to take the mass out of mass transit. So the social distancing, originally we had 50% cap and six foot you know, distancing. But on mass transit, if you look at if, if people are wearing masks, it's not practical in a lot of cases to keep six foot distancing uh, or to be able to keep a ridership to the 50%. We see that right now on bus, not on rail yet, although on some uh, AM uh, trains going into New York where we have a lot of construction workers, we're getting up to that 50%. So the governor on Monday rolled back the 50% requirement to just say to be keep uh, the full capacity based on seating capacity, uh, mm -hmm. but also requiring masks to be worn in stations and on platforms if, they're, if you're not able to keep your social distance. So it's uh, getting people comfortable with that and with our cleaning protocols. So by running a full schedule, then if, if uh, uh, you can, it's easier to maintain that 50% capacity and then keep passengers separated. That, on, that's on right. Trains. Yeah. How is that enforced? Uh, obviously, there must be announcements made, uh, but how, uh, how is that enforced, especially wearing masks? You're always going to get people who are going to say, well, I don't want to wear a mask. And so what in, in the case, if a situation like that occurs, how, how are you handling that? Yeah, it's a good uh, question, and it's certainly one that we have dealt with. Uh, we've watched everything from overseas, as well as getting consensus amongst all you know uh, the transit major transit properties around the country. Is that we're not able to put a police officer on every on every car, every train, every bus, uh, you know, at every station. So we what we have are for say a conductor. Um, you know, we do the announcements, etc. Uh, but at the end of the day, if um, I would say one, we are having extremely, I'd say 98% compliance. I mean, I, I take the train every day and I'll take from Newark Broad Street, light rail or mm -hmm. bus over. Uh, and people will be uh, sort of self-policing like a quiet car in a train. You know, you don't have a, you know, a conductor pulling everyone off and, you know, they may remind them. But at yep. the end of the day, it's the person next to you, you know, and uh, that seems to be working quite well. And I think that's sort of the, uh, the consensus, certainly amongst the seven states group. You know, there's seven northeast states uh, that the governors got together to form a, a working group. And I represent New Jersey on that on transportation. And we all feel that it's really shared responsibility. We'll provide clean cars. We'll provide the environment, but it's up to the riders to, you know, do their side as well. And also to employers to help flatten out the curve, the AMPMP, to allow flexibility for those who are going to work, you know, for, to be able to have flexibility in their hours so they don't have the same to take that same peak uh, uh, train. Right. So there's a lot of adjustments being made uh, on, the, on the commuters side, the people that, that do need to go into their offices or do report to construction sites or something. And also, uh, it's sad to see the the rest of the country the the spiking again. It looks like we may be going through a second wave, but maybe people in areas like New York and New Jersey, uh, where that hasn't happened yet, are are thinking to themselves, "Gee, this is serious. I better, you know, we better follow these protocols." So that that would be helpful, I would think. Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, the, I think from the guidance we're getting from Department of Health and Rutgers uh, Medical Science Center um, is that they're optimistic, although, you know, you can always slide backwards and we're doing everything to make sure that we don't, that the uh, probability of having a second wave if people keep wearing the mask, do the right thing, mm -hmm. is not high. One technology that you recently started rolling out uh, at a more advanced level is uh, the conductors having handheld devices for reading uh, reading paper tickets and read, reading tickets on, on mobile devices. Has that been accelerated uh, in light of what's happened, or is that or is that just part was that part of the regular plan? 
to do that. But it was part of the regular plan. You may remember right a year ago, we started the beta testing with one model, and the, the conductors had some issues with that, so we went back and tweaked it. Uh, the uh, feedback we've had now with this, uh, the second model and this, the software we're running now is they're uh, happy with it, they like it. So uh, with the uh, desire to have contactless contact uh, um, fare collection, you know, the uh, conductors really, there were some who were resisting it before, some who really liked it. And now they're seeing that, you know, not being able, you know, not having to handle paper, et cetera, uh, they've really embraced it and the union leadership have embraced it. So mm -hmm. we're using this as a, a good opportunity to accelerate it. We're doing it on the RVL, uh, Raritan Valley line right now, but we're going to be rolling out over coming months on the other, other lines as well. Do you see an eventual uh, transition to completely paperless ticketing where, where everything is, is, is on a mobile device? Yes, I, th I think uh, I think you'll get to the point that maybe 95 percent you're always going to have a few, and then you know we have Title VI issues, so you have to make sure that you're able to accommodate those who who don't have a phone and you know that kind yeah. of thing, a cell phone. Mm -hmm. But uh, the the wave is certainly going that direction, and uh, it, it, the conductors like it also because they can get information that they're not allowed to use their personal cell phone, as you know by FRA rules. Right. But, you know, be, they get they get fined. So. Uh, but if they use our devices, they can get information. So, you know, the, the Amtrak 40 office is doing something, you know, gets a message, they get it right away instead of, you know, having the, the, the rider on the seat knows more than they do right now. So uh, a lot of times with, with Twitter and social media. So uh, I think there's that aspect is also attractive. And financially that we have better data, you know, we can mine the data, see, you know, uh, mm -hmm. from a management tool as well. So uh, I think the the pendulum now is swinging, uh, and this has helped accelerate that. In the past two or three years, you've you've ramped up the engineer locomotive engineer training program because there there was a shortfall. The first class graduated what last year, I think, yep. late last year or twenty five, I believe. Yeah, I think twenty four, twenty four, twenty five. Yeah. Where does that program stand now? Has has the current crisis uh, affected that, or do you are you still getting? getting applicants for those those kinds of jobs. Oh, no, we're, we're still going full speed ahead. Uh, we've had, uh, you know, several other classes graduate since. We've also had retirements, a normal pen, you know, roughly, uh, you know, our, our, the number we're looking for is 400. Of course, we have the Newark Division and the Hoboken Division, so there's a breakdown by division. Uh, Hoboken, Hoboken, Hoboken Division, we're pretty much up at the, the, the number we'd like for Hoboken. Newark, we still need another graduating class or two to get there. And we can, we can juggle, and we are. Uh, but then we'll really be in the comfort zone where, you know, you don't need to be dependent on people you know, coming off the list, uh, supplemental list. Um, but uh, no, as a matter of fact, coming, coming in uh, this morning, I was, uh, you know, uh, I saw there were two people up in the cab car. Yes, I knew it was a trainee or something. I didn't go bother the engineer. But as I was getting off at Broad Street, you know, the guy, one of the engineer, I knew the engineer. He called me over. Hey, boss, I want you to meet this guy. I'm a young, you know, a young guy who looked <laughs> like a baby. <laughs> like, yeah. and I was like, there's a future of the industry. And he was all excited. Yes. Yeah, so no, it's going ahead, and we went right through. For a while, we had to do the virtual. You know, we had to we had to be flexible for a while and get make sure that our the rooms where they're in would be socially distanced all. But you know, we're we're still going ahead in that, and we're getting close to the, the, the magic number. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, people outside of of our industry, uh, the the public in particular, uh, uh, they don't understand how long it takes to train and qualify a locomotive engineer it's a it's a good what 18 month process at least absolutely and then you want them to be comfortable when they go out for that check ride that final check ride you want to make sure that you know they're comfortable they're ready 
you know, and the instructors or, you know, the, you know, the train master will say, hey, uh, this person is not quite ready. They're not, they still don't have the confidence level. So you have to make sure that when they're ready to go out to take, you know, take the helm on by themselves at their, uh, their mm-hmm. but, so it's, a, you know, 18 to 20 months. Positive train control. Where does that stand now? Uh, New Jersey Transit uh, was sort of on the, uh, on, on the edge of, well, you know, we, we may not make it, but uh, how, how, how are things going? I know that the administrator, uh, the FRA administrator, has been very, very helpful, as he has with all the agencies. Where do things stand right now? Yeah, boy, you know, you're being very polite. It was on the edge. We were, all, we were, we were dangling from a cliff by a other. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you said that I didn't. <laughs> there was no single. There was no one who would even place the bet in Vegas that we were going to make the deadline for installation. And uh, I think you know that uh, what we did, you know, formed a, a real uh, war room uh, down on the eighth floor, pulled everyone together. You know, said tear up your business card. We're going to make this work. It doesn't matter who. You know, don't start. Stop blaming each other. Stop bringing in the lawyers. Put a sign. No lawyers allowed. And uh, you know, we got the installation done. I think that was a real shot in the arm. Uh, we're now, uh, you may saw that just uh, last month, uh, we went into extended RSD. We were having some problems with, uh, which is not that unusual, but it, you know, when the tight time frame we were on, uh, you know, I got here in 2018 and, you know, this project started here in 2011, but we were trying to do like you know, seven years of work and then two, three years. So testing the commissioning and the testing of the software to, it was, you know, had a number of uh, glitches. So we lost some time, but we worked uh, well with Parsons and Alstom. To make up that time, so we were, went to extended RSD on the uh, revenue yeah. service demonstration. Yes, revenue yes. service demonstration. Okay. Sorry, uh, on the uh, the whole uh, Morris and Essex line, and the Montclair Booten line, and also the Gladstone line are now in extended RSD, and we'll be rolling out the others, uh, Pascack Valley, the coastline, etc., in the coming months. Uh, so uh, we're on track for making a, making a certification by the end of the year. And we also filed our safety plan. Uh, in uh, June as well, as which was a critical milestone mm-hmm. in the FRA was having yeah. that. But I, I, I do have to say, I cannot say enough about uh, the what the FRA has done. Ron Bator, particularly under his leadership, has been, uh, we have probably uh, drawn disproportionate amount of the resources to help us get there. Amtrak, you know, we had a very bad relationship when I came in with it. We were at war with Amtrak a few years ago. We patched that up with an agreement. Uh, so we're working very cooperatively with Amtrak both on PTC and on a lot of the capital projects, obviously Portal Bridge. We've had a lot of, a lot of real uh, help from uh, the FRA and our colleagues at Amtrak, and then the freights as well, Norfolk Southern, Conrail, et cetera. When you look at PTC deploying it across the NJT network, uh, you interface with Amtrak, SEPTA on some service, so the yep. Atlantic City Line, freight railroads, Norfolk Southern, Conrail, uh, the MTA. Uh, so, and there's a lot of different technologies and they all have to talk to each other. That is not easy. No, that's, uh, you know, it's one of the, uh, for somebody who's a railroader, it's one of the things that really is fascinating and legacy of, you know, what built this country in the 19th century, all the different railroads uh, and how it evolved. And then, of course, the creation of uh, New Jersey Transit uh, out of the, you know, the, the ashes to a degree 40 years ago. But it is, uh, you, you, you're quite right. You take, say, our Raritan Valley line, you start on our territory and, uh, you know, in diesel mode. And you know, that's where we have the, the dual modes, the DPs. Uh, then you go over Conrail uh, territory. Uh, then you, you know, then you switch on to the Northeast corridor, you know, on the Amtrak territory and that interoperability for PTC, you have to, you know, you have IET, MS on the freights, you have ACES, you have access and all, and you're also, you know, changing your, your power mode at the same time, you know, so, uh, from diesel and we get on the Northeast corridor to, uh, you know, electric, uh, with the catenary. So it's a, it is a very complex system and when it works right, it's amazing. 
and, you know, but it, it, when, it, when it goes wrong, you got a lot of challenges because uh, of the, the age and the complexity of the, the various. Uh, yeah. and, and even as far as electric traction power goes, you're dealing with different voltages, either you know, 25 kV, 12 and a half kV. Uh, so it's, you know, so in addition to having the signaling systems being compatible or talk, at least talking to each other, train control, you've got to go through those voltage transitions and other things. So it's, uh, operationally, it's quite complex. Yeah, no, it is. As I say, though, it's a fun challenge on the right, on good days. Some days, you know, you, you, know, you wonder who, who thought up this mess. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's really, uh, uh, I, I, I think, you know, as you know, I've been a, a NJ Transit uh, customer for, oh God, probably 30 years or more. And, uh, uh, you know, I've seen the improvements I've seen. I've seen the transitions and uh, the equipment coming online. And it's, uh, it's, it's, been a, it's been a good ride. It really has over the years. Yeah, so. I, I do think the last uh, few years, you know, really, uh, not just ankles are here, but we're able to, you know, with the backing that we got from, both uh, we've been uh, the FTA and FRA have been very helpful on the grant side as well for uh, a lot of uh, our needs. Uh, but uh, you know, Governor Murphy and the legislature and giving us more resources uh, certainly. Uh, you know, you look at the equipment we're pur purchased. You know, 113 more uh, multi levels. You know, uh, just last night we uh, purchased uh, you know seven more uh, dual mode from uh, engines from uh, uh, Bombardier. Bombardier. You know, mm -hmm. our, our board. So, you know, we bring down that average age of uh, fleet. I mean, the GP 40s, we love the Jeeps, but, you know, at some point, 50 years, it's like the old cars in Havana, the old American cars. I mean, you see them, they keep them going. But, you know, from a sense of mean distance between failures, uh, you know, you want to get that average age of the fleet. So let's move on to the longer range planning. Um, recently, there was uh, there, there were some long range capital plans announced. Uh, the funding, I think, is probably the, the biggest variable. Can you explain some of the priority projects uh, based on, uh, on, on your best case scenario uh, that you will have, have some funding for these? Sure. I, I think, um, you know, first, it's a little bit that there are two, you know, there's sort of two documents, two efforts we made when I came in was, I think the culture, the people have been suffering here, like many transit agencies, sort of the, I call it the, the transit hunger games, where you're pitting one against another because we're not, you know, it's sort of fighting internally for precious resources to the death. So the idea that you would actually have a complete comprehensive vision instead of trying to survive on crumbs as a, uh, a mindset change. So first I said, we need a strategic plan that, that you can sell basically to our shareholders and the shareholders being, uh, you know, aside from our riders, we have, you know, less a little bit less than half of our revenue comes from the fare box. The rest comes from either, you know, Washington or uh, Trenton and saying, okay, uh, to get that public support, you need to have people, hey, here's, you know, we'd always hear, oh, New Jersey Transit, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the golden days. So, well, you know, let's get a vision of, we, you know, it's not because we, we have a lot of great employees here. It's not like they're, they don't want to be a, a first class transit system. It's, you know, you have to say, okay, this is where we want to be. We have good employees who will help you get there. But, you know, here's the vision of what we can do. You know, state of good repair, first, you know, first and foremost, because we were so far behind that. But then also technology. We invest X amount of money in technology. What can we do? You mentioned, you know, fare collection, but our systems, uh, you know, how we communicate to our customers. You know, we had a very outdated, antiquated communication. So a lot of those kind of things say, this is what we can do. And then you go to the capital plan. The separate document was doing a, a, an assessment. We had Gannett Fleming do an assessment of all our facilities, um, all our stations, et cetera. And, and what, what, is the, what is the state of, what do we need to do from a life cycle cost, put together a capital plan that will bring up state of repair and some of the major projects. So um, we did that, and then we rolled out in parallel with our 10-year strategic plan. So, okay, 
you want to have this system, this is what it's going to cost. And here we have Rich Schaefer, who we bought over from HNTD, uh, you know, very uh, you know well-known engineer in the structures world. And uh, he put together the, you know, with a team, uh, Tony D'Amico came over from MTA, Jeannie Kwan from MTA Capital Construction, uh, Mark Tizzolo and others really helped put together a, a, what I think is a, it's a, it's our first, there'll be a rolling five-year capital plan. So we'll update it, you know, as to your point, as, as funding is available or as priority shift, but at least it's a document that we can go out to the legislator, to the public, to the advocate saying, here, this is, you know, you may like some things, you can tweak it, but here's what we need. If we get 2 billion a year, we can do this. If we get 3 billion a year, this is in that's uh, so we figure as a base between our formula funding for, and what we get from the transportation trust fund from toll revenues. And I would say that uh, road traffic in New Jersey, I'm sure you see, is back almost to normal. It's about you know, 85, 90% of what it was before. Oh, yes. I've, I've noticed that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, which is good because eventually I think that'll help drive people back to us as they get more. You know, right now, and it's easy to drive without a delay, you know, particularly going to the city. You know, it was only 10 minutes of the Holland Tunnel, Lincoln Tunnel. That's one thing. If it's 20 minutes, you know, it starts getting longer. People, you know, transit becomes more expensive. But we do see the uh, revenues. Uh, Governor Murphy put uh, did put a toll increase on the Turnpike and the, the other uh, toll roads, so that you know that funds the transportation trust fund. So we figure that the uh, we're you know a base roughly two billion a year that we get. Uh, a lot of that goes to debt service from equipment, the older you know equipment that was purchased before. But uh, that that'll allow us two billion of the roughly three billion a year that we need. So the the question is, how do we get the uh, gap uh, for that other billion? And that's where we're working with a lot of advocacy groups, you know, mainstream advocacy groups that have you know uh, a lot of clout with the business community. You know, the Chamber of Commerce, Alliance for Action, those kind of environmental groups because you know the environmental benefits of transit. So uh, we're we're getting getting support, but at least it gives us. A real tool that people can look to and say, okay, this is what you're going to get if you give us the money. And we've had a lot of positive feedback that. Um, major projects, I think the, you know, there's no shortage of, of projects and they range from a million dollar project to, you know, a $3 billion project, you know, from redoing uh, Hoboken, the, the rail yard there, the catenary, where all that needs major overhaul, you know, the, the station itself. So that's, you know, you can spend, a, uh, that should be our crown jewel in a lot of ways, you know, where that's one you know, major terminal that we do on. Um, but then things like WC interlocking, updating some interlocking that you can show if we do this, this will, you know, improve on-time performance, will bring down, you know, uh, it will shave two minutes off, uh, you know, off the trip. So uh, we have a whole program for stations, also for a lot of the structures, the bridges, you know, looking at when they need to be uh, replaced or what work needs to be done on bridges. Uh, things like, of course, um, you know, the portal bridge, obviously, we, you know, we, we're moving ahead with that. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's one of the biggest projects. But uh, things that are less known, uh, the Delco, uh, uh, Delco lead, you know, the county yard facility where we'd be uh, having inspections so we can take equipment. Uh, so where there's a storm, you know, that's in uh, Middlesex County, south of New Brunswick, be able to have that uh, working with Amtrak uh, for that. That project's moving ahead. You know, that's about a half a billion dollar project. So uh, then there's things like Summit, you know, west of Summit, doing that rail yard, redoing the walls around Summit. So there are a lot of projects, station, a whole station rehab program that people will be able to see these are the benefits. Some of them are the more in, invisible infrastructure to the riders. Other is, you know, the stuff that really they will see on the stations, et cetera. So yeah, uh, the, you know. the storage yard project, uh, that, uh, that, that's, that's a, a, uh, a plan for getting equipment out of low water areas in case there's uh, in case there's another super storm, uh, like what happened, uh, eight years ago with, uh, with Sandy and uh, the MMC getting flooded out, and uh, well, of course, of course that was uh, 
that was a disaster mm-hmm. for everybody. Oh, yeah. But uh, but there's got to be a place to move to move to higher ground. Uh, yeah, and that, and that's the whole point of that yard. But it also will will uh, you know ties in with a longer lead of the the midline loop. So that also you know down the line that instead of sending everyone back down to Morrisville down to Trenton, you know they'd be able to look to turn around the mid midline. And then also uh, to your point though, when you have storms and you need to bring the equipment up to higher ground, you have a yard there where you can do the inspection as soon as the storm's over. The equipment's safe. Do the inspections. You have pitch. You'll have inspections there so they can get the get the equipment right out uh, you know uh, right after the storm and that, that project is moving ahead now uh, with cooperation from Amtrak. Now I know this this is mainly about uh, commuter rail uh, commuter rail coalition but I did want to ask you a question about uh, well, light rail some expan- expansions in mind for for the uh, uh, Hudson Bergen system or possibly the river line extending that all down to Glassboro on uh, the light rail side, the Hudson Bergen light rail, putting the Bergen into uh, the Hudson Bergen light rail, going up the George Washington Bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that uh, we have the final alignment. We came out last year with the final alignment, and now we need first we need the the rod from uh, you know from the FTA. But when we get that, uh, then we would, uh, which we expect will will happen. And you know it's it's moving favorably. Uh, then we have to look at the funding. You know where's that funding come? Uh, they it will be eligible for federal grant. We'd have to put in for the grant when we get more specifics. But it's also going to be looking for where's the local match, and it's going to be it's going to be a big price tag. You know, you're talking you know uh, you know billion several billion dollars depending on you know, which which segments. So uh, when that comes, that's going to be uh, we're hoping in the next two years to be able to move ahead on that. Uh, but then it's going to be dependent on funding from uh, from uh, Trenton and Washington, but particularly Trenton. Uh, so that is part of the thing of why we have a plan. Say, okay, you're complaining we don't offer service on the Hudson Bergen up to you know. Englewood, maybe we can do that, but it's going to cost you. And uh, same thing for Glassboro, uh, let, less of a demand, but from an economic development point, it's uh, seen as a uh, something that would be uh, important for uh, spurring economic growth in South Jersey. And that's something uh, from what we see would not be eligible based on ridership projections for federal funding, but uh, certainly is important for South Jersey for the you know uh, the state down there. So state funding will have to be identified as we work out the final routes. Uh, you know, with uh, mm-hmm. there you have the inter, inter in, it's a diesel route down there, so you have to have the intersection with uh, the freights uh, in South Jersey. Yeah. And we've seen the economic development that has occurred along the the existing river line alignment all the way from Trenton down down to Camden. It's it's quite impressive. Yeah, no, it's uh, you know, uh, and it's frustrating. One of the one of the weaknesses in New Jersey compared to say the MTA across the river, you know, my good friend Pat Foy, is they have uh, you know the economic development. Uh, condemnation. So they, they can really do, you know, get the value capture from surrounding property, you know, like the Moynihan Station did, or like Hudson Yards or Atlantic Yards, where the MTA gets benefit by developing the properties, but they get the uh, the rateables and it turns that into a pilot stream of payments. So, um, you know, one vendable place. We do not have that capacity here, uh, you know, and it's a home rule, rule state. So, you know, it's, it's town by town. You have to do your individual deals for transit-oriented development, for example, with properties. Uh, so it's more complex in New Jersey, but uh, certainly that value capture, same thing with Hudson Bergen, they, or just what we did, Morris and Essex, my line, when they did Midtown Direct, you know, property value soared, but New Jersey Transit gets none of that. So that's something we're working with the legislature and governor's office to be able to find a vehicle so that we can get some of that value, uh, you know, capture some of that value that we bring to those communities. I wanted to talk a little bit more about, about the equipment on the commuter rail side. The multi-level twos combination of powered units 
and non-powered units where it makes the system very flexible. You could run them as uh, sort of hybrid multiple units or, or you could run them with, with locomotive power. The first one uh, we're looking to be would be uh, a bit more than a year from now. Uh, so, you know, a year and a half from now. Uh, and then, you know, with a rollout after that. It's exciting. It really will give us flexibility and, uh, you know, on the fleet and uh, versatility that, you know, uh, a lot the, the multi-levels are very popular with, uh, with our, uh, our riders. Uh, some of the conductors, frankly, don't, aren't that wild because they can't see all the way through, you know, car after car. You know, you'd have to go down and up. Um, but it's, uh, you know, there's no doubt for the capacity issue. I mean, we have a bit of a gap now with, you know, uh, COVID ridership down dramatically. We see it building up, but I think within, you know, when they get a vaccine or whatever, but with fully expect two years from now, we'll be back peak to jowl with crowded trains, uh, you know, and if you look at the trend over the last 40 years, particularly the growth in New Jersey, you know, we're the most densely populated state, uh, you can't, you can't build the roads uh, out much more than you already have. So uh, longer term, uh, meaning, you know, two, five, 10 years, you're going to, you know, we know we're going to be really uh, crowded. So the multi-levels, that additional capacity is uh, also important. So the, the long-term plan is to uh, eventually go to a, a 100% multi-level fleet. And so uh, every single every single line will have completely compatible equipment, and it gives you a lot more operational flexibility. Yeah, uh, very, very much so. And I think uh, you know, that, that strategy was one that was developed before I came here, but I certainly support it. And I think those efficiencies uh, and predictability really allow you to get you know, improve your uh, your on-time performance and you know, mean distance between failure, et cetera, really helps uh, not just the age of the fleet, but the maintaining of that, of that fleet. From uh, my background in the, in the private sector, uh, Bill Becker, our CFO, who came from Lucent, um, if you look at, you know, when you make an investment, you want to see how, what's the payback on the investment. You know, if you're going to build a new facility, what can you do to help when you rebuild it, bring down your operating costs? So uh, I think that's sort of... Uh, we are a public uh, a transit agency, but at the same token, we need to be able to look at running things so we get to manage it like a proper, uh, like a private sector would. I'd like to uh, like to ask you about uh, some of the things that have been said about public transportation from the health authorities. Some of them have uh, condemned transit generally as contributing to the spread of the COVID-19 virus, have warned the public to avoid using it. Uh, now, we know in the industry that that's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it, it's bunk. What steps is New Jersey Transit taking to, to combat this? I think that is extremely serious uh, threat. It, it do, it's not just transportation for transportation's sake, but it's really, you know, uh, we, we exist as transportation to be the underpinning for economy and for people's quality of life. The health officials here I think initially, anybody that's an enclosed space without a mask, whether it be in a, in a restaurant or in a train or you know, your own personal car with, with, with friends, uh, you know, initially, you know, yes, that, that's, you know, you had spread through a social contact. But with wearing masks, everything was seen both from uh, Asia, from Europe, and certainly our own data that we get from our Department of Health. Transit is not, does not have any higher uh, rate. That's not the case. And in fact, I would also say you look at our employees, the same thing I know the MTA, they've had a higher incidence with their employees, are, but our employees are below the state level. The wearing the mask has been shown that that, that, that uh, really is what's, what makes, a, makes the difference. And I think there's enough data to support that. And that transit is not any riskier than any other form of uh, transportation. There's been something really, I think, very astute pointed out by a, a major Wall Street firm. Actually, they're 
the managing director is our Wall Street contributing editor. This is Cowan and Company. Global warming, climate change is contributing to pandemics like this because it has impacts on, on the environment, impacts on wildlife. There's really a, a very, very strong case you can make for public transportation because of the positive effect it can have. Transportation writ large is one of the largest causes of greenhouse gas emissions, and transit is seen as one of the biggest ways to reduce that. We sent a letter to the CDC last week um, pointing out that their own website uh, prior to COVID had recommended public transportation as a mode of travel because of uh, a lower impact on greenhouse gas emissions, but also the safety side of it be, being that you're much more likely to uh, to perish in a car accident than you are on public transportation. Public transportation, riding the rail is the safest form. And their advisory regarding COVID, that people travel in personal vehicles, that's not a, an, an equal risk swap the possibility of contracting and then passing from COVID is higher than people would want to experience without a mask and all that. But if you uh, ride in a personal vehicle and, and the CDC is encouraging everybody to travel that way, then your risk of death from riding in that vehicle is even higher. And so they have walked back their, their language a little bit. The directives are going to change as more research takes place, but just making a blanket statement without any, uh, without any fact behind it was really harmful. I mean, just look at Tokyo and Hong Kong. Th those were not hotspots, and those are the, the densest transit systems in the world. And they were not hotspots, but those folks know how to wear masks. Mm -hmm. Public transportation is the best way to, uh, or one of the best ways to, uh, to address that. Uh, Fully agree, Bill. And uh, yeah, I'd say that our riders, at the end of the day, though, the riders, that, uh, New Jersey riders particularly, have a lot of common sense. Or I'd say that, you know, if I look at the work that Kellyanne and the coalition are doing, it's important for us to get the word out as we go into recovery. There's a great opportunity to use, not just for what we need for the industry, but really to get job creation, economic growth going again by having the investment in, in our rail network, uh, you know, certainly in our transit system nationally and New Jersey Transit, we're making up for a lot of lost ground, and we're hoping to get that funding out of the federal funding as well as state funding uh, to really make us have a robust capital plan that's not just going to bring back New Jersey Transit, but will also help respur the economy from the economic consequences of the uh, pandemic. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Kellyanne, thank you again for uh, facilitating this, uh, this conversation. As I like to sign off on all of these, uh, we, uh, we wish you uh, the best. We wish you good health. Have a safe day. Thanks, Bill. No, thank you, Bill. Thank you, Kellyanne. Look forward to seeing everybody in person. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> One day. <laughs> yeah.